we are continuing in the book of Genesis at Revolution Church. We like to go verse by verse through the scriptures, as you know. And so we've been in the book of Genesis for several months. We come to chapter 35 today, and our scripture reader today is Lauren Lacqua. How are you doing this morning, Lauren? Good. Hey, so tell us briefly, for those who don't know, uh, how, many, how many years have you been coming to Revolution, and how did you find Revolution Church? We've run, I think, three years now. Three, yeah. Yeah, because we came in 20, right before COVID, so maybe 2019. Yeah. Yeah, it was whenever we came, 2019, 2020. And then Ryan just started looking up sermons, and then he found your sermon. And so we went to Bounce Town. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then it was funny enough, we were starting to try for a child, our first child, Paul. And then we were going through the book of Paul. And so I picked the name before we you went through the book of Paul. So that was, <laughs> it was just meant to be. That's very cool. And the for those who don't know, the reference to Bounce Town is where our church used to meet in a business before we, we were in the, this, God provided this facility. So, all right, Lauren, read the scripture for us this morning. Hold it close. There you go. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your, your home. Was it? Your, okay, there we go. Move over here next Your to <laughs> brother Esau. All right, good down. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify your yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers them, me in the day of me distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that they were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terabith tree that was near Shechem. And they journeyed, a, a, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Lutz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, and he called its name Alan Beckoth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called, ja called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and God shall come with your own body. In the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, and I will give to you, and I will give to the land to your offspring and after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. And then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor and she had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, she was dying. She called his name Benoni, which his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, 
that was Bethlehem. And Jacob sent, set up a pillar over her tomb, and it is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Biloth and her father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. And the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simon, Levi, Judah, Iskar, and Zublin. And the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtil. The sons of Zilaf and Leah's servant, God and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Pandanum Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac of Mamre, or Kirkrath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and there was gathered to his people, old and awful of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you. You had all the hard words this morning, didn't you? All right. Let's pray. Father God, we believe that this is your word. We believe it is true from cover to cover. We believe that it is the Holy Spirit of God's sword that brings change to our lives and to our hearts. So Father, accomplish that in us this morning. Teach us what we don't know and make us more into the image of Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray and all God's people said, amen. If you see cracks around your doors like this, what is happening to your house? You got foundation problems. Your problem is not in this cheat rock. That's just a symptom. The source of your problem is your foundation. And that's the source of Jacob's problems in his life. He's got a cracked foundation. One moment he wants to serve God. The next minute he's wanting to serve his own desires and his passions. And you see that on Father's Day, we as men, we are called of God to build our family on the sure foundation of Jesus Christ. We want the sure foundation of Revolution Church to be Jesus Christ. And when we see parts of our lives that are becoming cracked and falling apart, we need to go back and find out where are we? Are we living on the foundation of Christ? Just a little recap of last week. We remember that uh, Jacob was struggling with things here, and so he's really not sure whether God is his God or not. And of course, prior to that, he, he wrestled with the angel, and that's when I believe his true conversion came. Um, and so you build upon that this week, and we see that uh, how many times was God mentioned last week when he was making all these bad decisions? Zero. In chapter 34, God is not mentioned. But in this chapter right here, post-conversion, after he's wrestled with God and he sees God, how many times is it mentioned in this chapter? It's mentioned 10 times, not counting the additional 11 times where God's name is in the name Bethel. Beth meaning house, El meaning God. So God is all over this chapter because Jacob has had a conversion experience. So we're going to divide chapter 35 up in, in five different ways. First of all, there's some house cleaning. Then there's the house of God. Then there's the house expansion, house of pain, and then the, the fifth part, a house divided. So let's jump right into the, God's word. So God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel, which again means what, people? 
house of God, okay, and dwell there. This will be Jacob's return trip to Bethel. He had been there before. He had a religious experience, but not a true conversion experience, which we'll talk about in a second. He says, I want you to go there, and I want you to dwell there, dwell in the house of God. That sounds like Psalm 23, doesn't it? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, and I shall what? Dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so Jacob is starting to live that pattern out that David wrote in the psalm, in a way, referred to. And so we have the, the patriarchs. It's really interesting uh, when you study them. Abraham had four altars. Remember that? And one of them, the, the most well-known altar, is where he wanted, almost sacrificed who? Isaac. And Isaac is a foreshadow of who? Of Jesus Christ. And of course, Abraham was spared by the angel to and told not to do any harm to him. But God, our Heavenly Father, did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. So Isaac was a foreshadow. And then Isaac had four wells. And then we, we learned about that. And it's interesting, Abraham's life covers 13 chapters. Isaac's just a couple of chapters. And then Jacob is 15 chapters, which we're ending today with his life. But it's interesting that Abraham had four altars. Isaac had four wells. Jacob, as we read here today, had four pillars. And just a little sneak preview, Joseph, four garments. Really interesting. In fact, the number four is very interesting in the Bible. The phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's mentioned four times in the Bible. Um, Leah, the unloved daughter and the unloved wife, had how many sons? She had four. Uh, you go through all throughout the Bible, you see that. In fact, in the Bible, the number four refers to being material, materially complete. Sorry, my tongue tied there. Now, we know seven is the number of perfection, but when you're supplying things, four was the number of being materially complete or supplied. In fact, it was on the fourth day of creation that God provided all the resources and material for planet Earth before he added living creatures. Out of the Garden of Eden, how many rivers flowed? Four rivers. Um, you take the Ark of the Covenant. How many rings? How many legs? How many priests carried it? Four, four, four. You see that number all throughout. You look at the, the tabernacle and eventually later the, the temple and you see the number four all over it. Four sides, four positions, different pieces of furniture, all kinds of things involving the number four. The Bible says four times about the four corners of the earth. Actually, I'm sorry, it says more than that, but four, it's 14 times. It talks about the four corners of the earth. People like to make fun of the Bible and say, well, see, the Bible thinks the earth is flat. No, the Bible says over and over again that the, the God sat upon the circle of the earth. The four corners is not referring to the earth as a flat square, but the four directions of the four corners of the earth. Both Daniel and Ezekiel had major prophetic prophecies that involved four beasts, Four creatures. In fact, Daniel foretold every empire that would be on the planet Earth. And he said, and after the Roman Empire, there'll be no more worldwide empires until Jesus sets up his empire. Did that, that prophecy come true? Yeah, it's amazing. He predicted the Greek Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, and like I said, and finished with the Roman Empire. He predicted every single one of them. How many Gospels do we have? Four, right? God supplied all the material we need to understand the life of Christ. And of course, we know in the book of Revelation, how many horsemen of the apocalypse? Four horsemen. And before the throne of God, how many creatures are there? These holy creatures? 
four creatures that sat between the 24 elders. I mean, it's all over the Bible. And then when God breathes out his destruction on planet Earth during the tribulation, how many angels will be sent out to carry out God's wrath? Four angels. So this number four is super significant. So God said to, to Jacob, I want you to live there. So now he's in the promised land. God has not expelled the Canaanites yet. He's being super patient. He says the, the wrath of the Canaanites has not been fulfilled. In other words, he's going to let them continue in their sin. And, and what kind of sin were the Canaanites doing? Sexually abusing women and children. Burnt offerings of children, live children, being sacrificed to Baal. I mean, and the list goes on and on and on about how evil this culture was. And he said, there you're going to make an altar. And, in, and of course, this, this altar had a pillar on top. That's what Jacob did different than, Ab- than Grandfather Abraham. He says, and I want you to go back to that place where you fled from Esau. When you fled from Esau, that's when you first encountered me. And you had a religious experience, but you really didn't know me then. You were really in trouble. And I, I see this happen a lot to people. Their marriage is on the rocks. Pastor, can you help us? And so I, I start giving them biblical counseling for how to help their marriage. The marriage gets better, and whew, they're gone. <laughs> we don't need to God anymore. We're good. <laughs> you know. Um, there was a story of, of a man who the doctor came in and told the guy in the hospital, he said, hey, so I'm really sorry to tell you some bad news. He said, but you have stage four cancer. You have probably two months to live. And the guy's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. I didn't expect this news. That this is not, that, I didn't think this is what I came to the hospital for. Can, can you get a pastor or a chaplain to come talk to me? And then the, the chaplain comes in and says, hey, I heard you need some spiritual counsel. And he said, yeah, yeah. And then the doctor comes in and he goes, oh, sorry, Mr. Reynolds, I am so sorry. I was reading the wrong chart. You're fine. And the chaplain goes, do you still want to talk to me? He goes, no, I'm good. <laughs> and people do that all the time. When life is like distressed and they need help, oh, God, God, where are you? Where, God, where are you? But then when everything's smooth, it's like, okay, see you, God, don't need you anymore. And God forbid that we treat him that way. He said, in fact, what Jacob needed to do was circle back to where all this started. And my question for you this morning is, do you need to circle back to the place in your life when you first encountered God and build a new altar there? Maybe when you first went to vacation Bible school, or maybe you first heard the gospel in church, and maybe you made, had a religious experience, and maybe you were like Jacob and it really wasn't real. And we'll see why it wasn't real. But maybe we need to circle back to our Bethel. So Jacob said to his household and to all that were with him, put away the foreign gods. Now, that was not only a problem in his, in his, amongst his servants and his hired people, that was a problem in his own family, as we'll see here in just a second. Again, they were sacrificing children. This wasn't just like, oh, why can't we be ecumenical and everybody, you know, just be Buddhist or Islam or whatever. This was talking about Canaanite gods, where they were sacrificing children by the thousands to please this evil god. And he's saying, yeah, we cannot tolerate this. We cannot put up with this. He said, put away these foreign gods that are among you. Let me ask you a question. How many of you remember, who amongst them had some foreign gods that Jacob didn't even know about? Rachel did. Remember, Rachel stole her Laban's gods. Remember, they're not these big statues. These little, like, G.I. Joes. (laughs) They're small ones that she stole. And where did she hide them? In the saddle or under the blankets. And then she told her dad, well, you know, don't don't look over here because it's my time of the month, so please don't look over here. So Laban's looking everywhere trying to find these little gods. And I don't even know if Jacob knows this yet, 
but he's fixing to find out. It'd be interesting to have been there when Rachel brought these out. And then uh, he says this, put away the foreign gods. Notice the three verbs here, put away, purify, and change. Man, that is a great formula for revival right there. In fact, this is what people need to do in order to be saved. You have to put away your trust in your own self or whatever it is you're trusting in that is not Jesus Christ. You need to purify yourself by the blood of Jesus Christ, have forgiveness of sins, and then you need to have bring forth fruit, meat to repentance, as John the Baptist said, and change your way of living. Change, that's what the garments is a reference to. It's what people see on the outside. Let the inward change be reflected on the outside. You see this reflected in Ephesians. I wonder if Paul was reading Genesis 35 when he wrote this. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and be renewed or purified, if you will, in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self. Put on like you would put on clothing. And it's interesting that that new clothing, that new self is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is what Jacob is asking people to experience. He said, you know, I've encountered God. I saw God face to face when I wrestled with him. And I want you to do the same thing. I want you to put away these old gods. I want you to be purified in yourself. And I want you to put on new clothing, which is a sign of repentance. He said, then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar. The God who answers me in the day of my distress. We have a God who answers us. He hears us. He loves us. He cares about us. I'm so glad that we worship a personal God. It's interesting that you know, all over the planet this morning, millions and millions of Christians can be speaking to the same Heavenly Father, and yet He gives each one of us personal attention as if we were the only one in the audience. That's the God we serve. That's, that's the God we love, the God who hears us. And He heard Him in the day of His distress. Genesis 28, this is what his experience was back then. It was very conditional. He said, well, if God will be with me, and if God will keep or protect me, and if God will give me, notice the me, 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 if God will do all this, well, then the Lord will be my God. This is why I say that Jacob just had a religious experience. It was very self-serving, very conditional. It was like, if God will heal my marriage then I'll go to church. If God will cure my grandmother of cancer, well, then maybe I'll read my Bible. And we start negotiating with God. We're not here to negotiate with God, okay? Um, people, when we, they come to Jesus Christ, this is how they come, in total surrender. I give up, unconditional surrender. It's not like, well, if you'll do this, I'll do that. You, you know, we have a war in Ukraine going on right now. And sometimes two countries can come to terms and negotiate. Well, okay, if you do this, then we'll do this. And if you'll pull out of this city, then we'll pull out of this city. And then we'll return these soldiers to return. God's not talking about negotiating with you. He's saying, you've sinned against me. I have every right to punish your sin and you for eternity. You come to me with both hands up in full surrender. That's the way we come to Jesus Christ. It, it, what does the Bible say in Romans 10.9? If you will confess with your mouth, that Jesus is what? Lord. This is a big part of what's missing in today's American gospel. Hey, how many of you want to go to heaven? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you want to be healthy, wealthy, and wise? Great, raise your hand. Okay, pray this prayer. Jesus, come into my heart. Okay, amen. You're a Christian. Boom. 
That is not the gospel. It's not the gospel at all. The gospel is you are way more sinful than you ever imagined, but you are far more loved than you ever dreamed. And you know that that's from Tim Keller. That we need to realize the gravity, the weight of our sinfulness, that we have offended a holy God and that we deserve his punishment, but that he poured out his wrath on his only beloved son in our place. And we don't negotiate with someone who gave everything. What do we do? We give everything to him. We give our entire life and everything to Christ because he gave his entire life for us. So in further in this house cleaning, they, they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods. And I believe all means all. So I think Rachel, if she hasn't done it already, fessed up. And so again, read between the lines here. I don't want to read too much into what's not there. But all means all. So all the foreign gods, including what Rachel did, foreign gods, and even the rings that were in their ears. This is, and I think this detail, in addition to the idols, the, the earrings, was Moses, who's writing this, is making a statement. They could have easily said, oh, well, it's just fashion. It's just fashion on their ears. And I'm not preaching against earrings this morning, so don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? But in that culture, earrings were a big part of the prayer life to these pagan gods. So to have these particular earrings in their ears was something that they had to give up. So they not only gave up the idols themselves, they gave up the things that connected them to those gods. Do you see what I'm talking about? And when we repent of things, we not only need to give those things up, we need to give up whatever connection we have to them. And so he, that's why he lists that as well. But here's what's interesting, and I don't know what to make of this. We can speculate, and I think that's what the Holy Spirit's asking us to do, is just maybe some sanctified speculation. Jacob hid them under a terebinth tree, that was near Shechem. Now, you, you guys know your Bible. Most of you know it pretty well. In other parts of the Bible, when they uncovered false gods, what did they usually do with them? Burnt them, crushed them, whatever. He hides them. It doesn't, mean, it, didn't, it doesn't say he just buried them. He hid them. And usually when you hide something, it's because you have an intention of knowing where it is so you can what? Recover it. And again, I'm not trying not to read too much into Scripture, but really, I scratched my head as I was studying this past week about why is he just hiding them? Why isn't he pulling a Moses and an Aaron and just burning these things and melting them down or doing whatever he needs to do? I don't know. We'll, we'll see if it comes back to bite him later. Let me ask you a question this morning. Dad's on this Father's Day. Are there some idols in your family that you need to clean out of your house? Are there things that are unhealthy and out of balance? Has sports become an idol to your family? Has the television become an idol to your family? Has money, education, all kinds of things? You, you know your list, right? I'm not going to try to play the Holy Spirit this morning. But you know what things tend to creep up and become idols in our lives to where we put them in front of God. They demand more of our time, more of our money, more of our passion, more of everything. And then all of a sudden, God kind of gets pushed to the side as these idols creep up. So now let's move from the house clean to the house of God. So as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities. Now, when you read this phrase in other parts of the Old Testament, it means a supernatural presence of fear. You, know, you see this happening to the Philistines and the Hivites and other armies that were attacking Israel, where you see a terror came upon them where the Spirit of God causes a supernatural fear. And so you think about this, this is happening in the cities around them. 
what just happened last week? They went into to Canaan land, and they with she- into specifically the city of Shechem. And what did they do to all the men? They killed all of them. Remember they said, hey, if you agree to get circumcised, we'll exchange daughters, which was totally a ruse. And, and then after they were all circumcised, when the men were in recovery, they went through two brothers. Which, which two? Simeon and Levi went through with a sword and killed every man in the city. And so now all the cities around them are like, we don't like these people. And of course, what they did, the Bible doesn't condone. It just simply describes what they did. In fact, you'll see that the, all the problems are created by them doing that. They were getting revenge off the, after the rape of their sister Dinah. And then they took revenge into their own hands when the Bible says that vengeance belongs to who? God. God says, I will repay. But they said, no, no, we're going to repay. So anyway, but God, instead of all the cities around them wanting to get revenge on them for what they did, God caused them to fear them. So he protects them even after their own foolishness. How many of you are thankful this morning God protects us even after our own foolishness? Yeah, I would be in big trouble if God didn't protect me from my own foolishness and consequences. And Jacob came to Luz at his Bethel. And the reason he used the word Luz is because he's telling the, the readers who are reading it at the time what it's called now so they can reference to what it was called then. And so they're in the land of Canaan. Now remember, Canaan is the grandson of Noah, and that was part of the cursed race, and they went into that land, and here they are living out the curse, being evil, and God is going to take what was given to those people and take it away because of their sin and replace them with the, the children of Israel in the promised land. So it says in verse 7, that there he built an altar, and he called the place of the name El Bethel. Evidently, Jacob graduated from the redundancy school of redundancy. It's, it's, it's God at the beginning, so this is the God of the house of God. So he's like, I've, I've been to the house of God before, but now I met God in the house of God. Can you relate to that? There are people all the time that go to the house of God and don't hear from God at all. <laughs> they hear a lot of pop psychology. They see a good rock concert. They see a lot of show. They see a lot of things, and they go out feeling really good, and they're feeling like their best self, but they haven't met with God in the house of God. And this is Jacob saying, hey, you know, before I had a religious experience because I came to God with all these conditions. If you do this and if you do this and this, well, then I'll serve you. He's like, now I know since you've knocked my hip out of joint and you've crippled me and you've knocked me to my lowest point in life, I've surrendered all to you. And now I've met the God of the house of God. We like the name Bethel, right? That's a great part of our history there. God had revealed himself to him. God didn't just reveal his will, didn't just reveal his plan, didn't just reveal his blessings, he revealed what? Himself. You don't go to God to get things, you go to God to get God. And this is what was different now in, in, in Jacob's life. Do you want God to reveal himself to you? People said that often. You know, well, if God would just show himself to me, maybe I'd believe him. Here's how God does that, through the word of God. If you're wanting God to show himself to you, show his will to you, show him his heart to you, to show his priorities to you, and you're not reading the Bible, there's a major disconnect there that needs to be corrected. God reveals himself in his word. Don't take my word for it. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. 2 Corinthians says, so whenever Moses, and that's a reference to what? The Torah, okay? And you could even, many times Moses is also a broader uh, to reference the whole Old Testament, but let's just say it's just the Torah. Whenever Moses or the Torah is read, 
a veil is over their, in the context he's talking about lost Jews. When they read the Torah, there was a veil over their hearts. They, they could not understand what they were reading. They could not see. They, they could understand the details, and they could try to live out a legalistic lifestyle trying to live out Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But when one turns to the Lord, what happens? The veil is removed. I was saved when I was only nine years old. And yet I remember as clear as day, it was like a veil was removed from my heart and my eyes. I wasn't some, you know, drug dealer strung out on crack, robbing banks, okay? I was only nine. But yet the, the transformation from darkness to light was unmistakable. And this is what happens when someone, when they read the Bible, but they don't know God, they, no wonder they get confused and discouraged. But here, when you come and you turn to the Lord, that veil is removed, and watch what happens. And we, talk about believers, we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being what? Transformed. The Greek word is metamorphe. That describes what? A, a caterpillar, an ugly, squishy little thing that goes in the cocoon and comes out a beautiful butterfly. That is a picture of salvation. And we are going to continue that transformation, not just when we're born again, but more and more we are transformed into the image of Christ. That same image, talking about the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. There's a major glorification that comes out at, at, when you're born again, when you're at salvation, but there's a continual transformation happen, what we call sanctification, from one degree of glory to another. And it all happens when we spend time in the Word, seeking God's face. Let's see here. So that brings us to the third point, house expansion. So Deborah, this is a different Deborah than the, the, um, the judge Deborah. Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, nurse maid, she died. Now this is interesting. Several nursemaids have died and will die, and they're not mentioned here. So evidently, God using an economy of words here is just trying to point out, hey, this lady was special. And she was buried, and this is really interesting, an oak, under an oak below Bethel. What was just buried a couple of verses ago? The pagan gods, and now the nursemaid's also buried under a tree. I think God's trying to tie two things together. These are two things that were near and dear to their heart. The nursemaid, Deborah, she was evidently very special to Rebecca, and then these idols were also very special to Rebecca. So Rebecca's lost two things here recently. One she should have lost, the other, Deborah, she didn't want to lose. And so it's really interesting. The word Alan Bokuth is the oak of weeping. This wasn't just another servant to her. This is someone that they, Jacob, Rebecca, probably the whole family cried about because they were very close to her. And so it makes a mention in the Bible. So why is this seemingly small detail about a nursemaid dropped in here? I believe it's because even if you think your role in life is very insignificant, you can do some pretty major things to where God will take a verse of Scripture and dedicate it just to you. Didn't we see that in the New Testament? That a woman came to Jesus and she anointed his, his feet with spikenard and, and he said, hey, wherever the gospel is preached, this woman's going to be mentioned. So here, she's like, Deborah's like the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament woman whose name is mentioned everywhere. So God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and he blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. He, yeah, thanks for reminding me. My name is Heel Gripper. My name is the Trickster, or whatever you want to call it. It's not a positive name. 
He says, but you know what? No longer shall your name be called Jacob. He didn't say your name won't be Jacob. He just said, we won't call you Jacob anymore, but we'll call you Israel, shall you be your name. And Israel, Jacob means one who trips up other people. Israel means one who wrestles with God. So you're going to stop wrestling with flesh and blood. You're, you're now going to deal with me. And in a good way, you're going to involve yourself physically with me in a spiritual relationship with me. And God said to them, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. We see that all throughout Genesis. Who was the first people to have this commandment given to them? Adam, Eve, good job. Abraham, Isaac, and now it's Jacob. This is part of the covenant. This is part of God's um, commands to mankind, and today it's still part of what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be fruitful and multiply, physically and spiritually, and all kinds of ways. And let me actually let me go back to that for a second. And so he said, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. And of course, we see all these nations being birthed out of them, the 12 tribes. We saw the same thing happen with Esau on the other side. They're just bad, 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 bad. And then all of a sudden we come to Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, to show that we don't put our hope in a, a man to lead our country. We put our hope in Jesus Christ. And you see all the governments of the world, from democracies to monarchies to socialists to communists, all these things, and what they all do, some are better than others, but they all stink. <laughs> None of them were perfect. Benjamin Franklin said that, that a democratic republic is the worst form of government until you compare it to every other form of government. And so man is just trying to manage man, and we do a bad job of it. And they're all failing to line up to show that Jesus Christ, when he comes and brings his government, he will have benevolent dictatorship, and it'll be perfect. It'll be what we're all made to live under. So this promise not just includes descendants, it also includes the land, okay, the land of Canaan that he's going to give to them. And then God went up from him. It's interesting, the language here in the place where he had spoken from him. Does that sound familiar? When God is with them, giving him promises, saying what he's going to do, saying he'll be always with them, and then he goes up from them. What does that sound like? The ascension. I heard somebody say it. The ascension. Remember, Jesus gave his disciples the commandments to go into all the world and preach the gospel and all that. And then while they were beholding, he went up. And then the angels came to him and said, Hey, you men of Galilee, why are you standing here gazing up at the cloud? This same Jesus who went up from you in like manner will return to you Again, so Jacob set up a pillar. This is what Jacob does. He sets up pillars. How many pillars does Jacob set up in his lifetime? Four, good for you for remembering. In the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. Now, we don't know what kind of drink offering it was. Many times in the Old Testament, it was a drink offering of wine. Sometimes it was just water. In either case, it was something valuable because water was very, very valuable in a desert climate. And the Apostle Paul said in the New Testament, he pours his life out as a drink offering. A drink offering of saying, hey God, everything I am, I'm going to give it 110%. In basketball, we say to the players, leave it all on the court. You got time to rest and recover later, right, Michaela? Okay, give it, leave it all on the court, right? Michaela's a good basketball player and a very good basketball player. And so this is what that's saying. It's signifying, hey, you pour it out and you say, every drop to you, God, I'm going to give you my all. And then a pouring of oil on it is a picture of the Holy Spirit, replacing what you've poured out and replacing it, pouring on the Holy Spirit of God, God's anointing in our life and all that. And a lot of people abuse the phrase, the anointing of God, but this is talking about sanctified for a special purpose, which is what God has called us to be. 
So Jacob called the name of that place where God had spoken to him with Bethel. Now, Bethel again means house of God. And in the New Testament, what is the house of God? The church. We are the house of God. We are living stones built together to be the dwelling place of God. God no longer dwells in a tent or in a tabernacle. He dwells, and I'm not referring to the building. The building has not replaced the tent or tabernacle. We are the building. We are the lively stones that together make the house of God, and God dwells in us. We, also, we often misquote when Paul said to the Corinthian church, know you not that your bodies are the temple of the living God? And he says your body, he means the church, the local body. He's not talking about you individually necessarily, although that's true. But in that context, he's talking about you, the church, God dwells in us collectively. There, you know, you can meet with God anywhere, anytime. Amen? You could be in your car and God could be with you. You can praise him. You can learn about his word. But there is something special when we come together collectively as the body of Christ that is different. The Holy Spirit meets us with a different way. The word of God takes on a different form. Everything takes on something. You can sing in your car. Me, I, that's the only place I probably should be singing <laughs> where nobody can hear me. But there's something that happens different when we, the body of Christ, sing his praises together as God's people. And that's what Bethel meant here in this context to us in the New Testament as well. So now we move on to the house of pain. So they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some distance from Ephrah, Rachel, now how many wives does Jacob have right now? Four, right? Okay, remember Rachel and Leah and then two handmaids they took as wives. Which one is his favorite? Rachel's his favorite. So this is, this is a big part of the story. This is the dramatic part. This is where the music and the background of the movie will be changing. Rachel is going to be dying and she's going into not just labor, she's going into hard labor. And she's the one that, remember she said a while back, oh, you know, get to her, Jacob, give me children lest I die. And now the irony is she's going to die from having children. She had intense labor. And when her labor was at its hardest point, the midwife who's helping her deliver the baby said to her, do not fear. And this next line's puzzling. It's like, don't fear. You're going to be okay. You're not going to die. No. Don't fear. You're going to go to heaven when you die. No. It's really weird. Here's a lady that's dying in the midst of giving birth. And she said, don't fear. You have another son. Why is that? It's because, again, in that culture, having sons was everything. And Rachel, prior to this, had a hard time having babies at all. And Rachel lived to have children. And, and if she's going to die in the process, she wants to know dying that she's had a son. I think that's what the, the midwife is saying to her. Now, we should cherish girls just as much as boys, right? But in this culture, boys were a big deal. And that's what Rachel's idol was in, in a way, that she have sons and give those sons to her husband. So as her soul was departing, really interesting phrase. I've heard, studied a lot about near-death experiences. When I first heard about it, I was super skeptical, and I still am to a large degree, but I can't discount all of them. There's a lot of near-death experiences that there's things that people say that are inexplic inexplic inexplicable. <laughs> um, and again, there's so many books out there, like, was it Nine Minutes in Heaven? And other things like that. Not worth the paper they're written on. A lot of superstition and um, paganism involved in them. But there are, I believe, some genuine near-death experiences that we need to be maybe listen to carefully, but all filter through the eyes of Scripture. Like I, I read one account where 
a, um, a young boy, it was 12, and I don't remember why he died, but he died on the table. He flatlined and everything. And they think they said he was on the fifth floor of this hospital. The hospital had 14 stories. And when he, they revived him, you know, they did the whole paddles and all that stuff, and they brought him back. And he gave detailed accounts. He said, where are the Nikes? And they're like, what? what do you mean? He said, there's white Nikes with a red stripe on the roof next to the air conditioner. And he said, they're like, well, how do you know that? And he said, as my body was, as my spirit was leaving my body and I was going up, I saw them on the roof and they went up there and there were a pair of shoes exactly like he described it next to the air conditioner. And that's crazy stuff. And again, I, I don't change your life or base anything much on that. It just maybe confirms scripture. And if it doesn't confirm scripture, you can just throw it in a trash can. But here she's departing. You have this idea of the soul leaving the body, which is when you're dead, right? And, and of course, she was definitely dying. And she called his name Ben-Onai, which means son of my sorrow. So she names her son after the sadness of dying that she's experiencing. Not a great way to name your kids. And what's really interesting is Jacob turns around and changes the kid's name. He basically took what her dying wish of naming this son this name, and he throws it in a trash can. Oh, we're not calling that kid that. We're going to call him son of my right hand. Do you see like how Rachel went from, oh my gosh, she's everything. I'll work seven years for her. Oops, you tricked me. I'll work seven more years for her. He worshipped, literally worshipped Rachel, and she's everything. And now it's like she's going down in order. You'll even see at the end of this chapter, when it lists all the wives and their children, guess who's listed first? Not Rachel, Leah. And I don't know what, I don't want to read too much in it, but there's, there's a whole lot going on here. And in fact, I'm going to read you something here in a second that I think you'll, we'll back that up, that his, his love for Rachel is going down. Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrah, that is Bethlehem. He's reminding us of the geography. You compare that. Look what was just said. Rachel died, and she's buried. But when grandfather Abraham had his wife Sarah die, Abraham went into mourning for Sarah, and he wept. doesn't say he cried. He wept. Like you could hear the man crying aloud. He loved Sarah so much. And the same guy that wrote Genesis 23 wrote Genesis 35, and he gives you the details of how Abraham felt about Sarah's death. And he doesn't give you any details about how Jacob feels about Rachel's death. I think that, that the love there is worn off. And again, not recommending you do that. It just You can see a difference in, in the love in these two marriages. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb, and it is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. And when he says to this day, that's when Moses is writing this. But guess what? You can go over to the Middle East, and it's still there to this day. If, if archaeologists are right about this, this is Rachel's tomb over in the Middle East. So we saw some house cleaning with idols. We saw the house of God, him going back to Bethel and having a genuine experience with God this time. We see the house of expansion that God promises, I'm going to bless you, you're, you're the same promise I made to Abraham and Isaac, I'm giving you that your children shall be like the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea, and kings and nations will come from you. And then we saw the house of pain, where Rachel dies, and that brings us to the final point, a house divided. So Israel, which is, that's what we're now calling him, Jacob, and you see, you'll see where it goes back and forth, whether he's called Israel or Jacob, depending on how he's behaving. He journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder, and while Israel lived in that, the land, Reuben... Who's Reuben? He's the oldest son. So while dad's away, Reuben's going to play. 
And he lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And, is, and this is really weird. And Israel heard of it. So this is a pagan practice. When the man who was the head of a clan, when he got like old and wasn't as vibrant as before and not able to fight in battle, sometimes the oldest son would assert himself and say, hey, I'm in charge now. And the way he would show his dominance is sleep with someone in the man's harem. Really bad way of behaving, right? And this is what he does. Reuben's like, I'll show everybody who, who's in charge. I can sleep with anybody I want to. And maybe that, that uh, Bilhah was the best looking. We don't know. But he's going to show that he's now in charge while his dad's gone. And, and then it says, in Israel, Jacob heard of it. And that's it. In fact, in the original manuscripts, it says in Hebrew, Israel heard of it. And there's a long blank before it starts writing again, as in, and that was it. He did nothing. He said nothing. Sound familiar? What happened when Dinah was raped? Jacob does pretty much nothing. He's like, well, my sons aren't here to back me up, so I'll wait till they get here. And then his sons are furious, and they go out on, on a crusade of revenge. And then he just goes, right, okay, now so here's another little interesting fact. The sons of Jacob are 12. has nothing to do with, with what just happened. It's just the silence of Jacob while bad things are happening is off the charts. And dads, man, God forbid that we be silent when evil is suppressing and attacking our families. When bad things happen and we just say, stand by and do nothing. That's evidently what the Bible is trying to get us to read between the lines on Jacob. So then it goes into this genealogy. and I won't go through all the details right now for just time's sake. But it lists Leah first, which is interesting. And Reuben's the oldest, and then list the, the, the children of others, uh, the other wives, and all. And you see, this is basically what made up the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob lived to be 180 years old. Again, prior to the flood, people lived for how long? You know, Methuselah, 986, and people into the eight, nine hundreds. After the flood, you see lifespans going down and down and down. And so Jacob lives 180 years. And it says, and Isaac breathed. His last, so his dad dies and was gathered to his people, which is a way of saying he went to paradise to be with the saints and was, and his, and it was old and full of days. And so that's a way of saying he had a full life. It was a, it was a good life. It wasn't a perfect life by any means, but he died knowing that God had blessed him in many ways. And his sons Esau and Jacob, remember they had parted ways. They didn't really like each other. But they come together just like Isaac and Ishmael to bury their dad. Which I think the scripture repeats the same parallel stories twice. It's a lesson to us. When someone in your family dies and you're at odds with other people in the family, put all that aside, come together, honor the dead, and do what you're supposed to do. Leave your bickering and fighting behind like Isaac and Ishmael did and evidently like Esau and Jacob did. So, let me go back to something. When Rachel died, it says, as her soul was departing, uh, she called his name Benoni, son of my sorrow. So, and then Jacob renames him son of my right hand. Son of my sorrow, son of my right hand. Does this sound familiar? This is what Jesus Christ is to us. In Isaiah 53, he is the man of sorrows. And yet, after he experienced his sorrows on the cross, taking our sorrows upon him, then where was he exalted? 
to the Father's right hand. You see the gospel right here in this passage. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried away our what? Our sorrows. That's why he's called the man of sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We want to say that Jesus was crucified by the Jews. Well, okay, no, not exactly. He was crucified by the Romans. Well, yes, technically, but he was smitten by God. That's hard for us to grasp that God poured out his wrath on his son for us. Jesus was not a victim of a ministry that went off the rails and he got himself killed. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I freely lay it down. He laid down his life to receive the wrath of God that was poured out on himself that should have been poured out on you and me. Romans chapter 8 says that Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is the right hand of God. And then we come back to this verse again. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. Rachel had a son, man of, son of my sorrows, renamed son of my right hand. That's what Jesus Christ went, to to purchase, went through to purchase your salvation. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior? This is so important. Adults, teens, this is, this is what matters more than anything right now. Is have you personally made this decision? See, Jacob had a religious experience at Bethel the first time, and he kind of negotiated with God, and God's like, you know what? You need to go back to Bethel because that other decision was not right. This time I want you to give me my all. Have you given your life to Christ because he gave his life for you? I would like to invite everybody to pray with me right now. If you know Christ is your Lord and Savior, would you take a moment to just thank him for the wonderful salvation that you know personally? And then would you also pray for those who don't know, know him? Those for whom the veil has not been lifted from their heart. If you're here this morning, and maybe you're religious, but you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can become a child of God today. You can be, as Jesus said in John chapter 3, you can be born again today. Not just a physical birth, but now a spiritual new birth. You need to recognize that you're a sinner who deserves the punishment of God. And believe in your heart that God sent his son to take that punishment for you. No one has ever loved you that much, and no one ever will. And the very one who took upon all your sins wants you to give him your life, to repent of all you are and all your sin, and to accept him and his forgiveness that he freely offers as a gift to you. You can make that decision right now. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this chapter. Thank you for the lessons we learn from such frail, imperfect people that resemble us. Lord, we see ourselves in Jacob in so many ways. We see ourselves in Rachel. We see ourselves in, in all of these frail people that are all sinners in need of a Savior. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would leave here today more like the image of Jesus Christ than we came. And we thank you for all that you do in Jesus' wonderful name. And all God's people said... Amen. Amen. If you made a decision to trust Christ today, I'd love to hear from you. This is my cell phone number. Call me, text me. If you have questions, like, Eric, okay, I'm like there, but I have more questions. You know, let's do that. Let's have coffee. Let's talk about it. We're going to do a question and answer session right now. So uh, you could text in a question for me if you would. Um, I don't have Amanda. Uh, Stacy, you up for this? Okay. Put you on the spot. Stacy's going to help us today. 
and do question and answer sessions. So you can text in those questions. Um, looks like we have a couple already. I think so, anyway. Um, all right. And then, oh, microphone. Let's use this one right here, Stacy. Sorry. All right. And again, the number's on the screen. Or if you'd rather just raise your hand, you certainly can do that. Did God create certain people to be condemned to hell or carry out evil deeds towards his ultimate plan? For example, was, Jesus, was Judas created to betray Jesus? Wow. That, that's going to give me the deep ones here first thing in the morning, right? Okay. So good job, Greg. Thanks. Um, okay. So I, I, I want to give you uh, a really outstanding sermon by the recently passed Timothy Keller. And he expresses this super well, um, talking about how God's sovereignty and man's free will do coexist. And he talks about through the book of Acts, talking about how Paul was told by God that, hey, God told us everybody on the ship is going to be okay. But then people start straying off the plane. It's like, okay, if you jump ship, you're not going to be okay. Like, well, I thought you said God say we'd all be okay. Yeah, but you still have free will to stay in God's plan. And so is God sovereign? Yes, the Puritans said not even the dust blows off the road without God knowing about it and ordaining it. But yet at the same time, you have a choice. And how those two mingle together, this puny brain cannot reconcile. But like David Platt says, um, best friends don't need to be reconciled. <laughs> Sovereignty and free will don't, don't contradict each other. And so you are given free will, but yet God is sovereign. So when the Bible talks about people that are appointed to wrath, it, their appointment is because of the rejection of Christ. Their appointment is, is even more specifically because of their sin. Everybody deserves hell because of sin. Their, their Savior is Jesus Christ. So in God's sovereignty, yes, he raised up Pharaoh to be an object of his wrath. But yet, you read about Pharaoh, it says one verse, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then a chapter later, it says God hardened his heart. Then it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. This is God. It's like, what's going on here? Free will and election. And again, I, we, we tend as human beings go to one extreme or another. We tend to be Armenian and say, God has no idea. There's people who believe in a progressive God, which means that God is even growing in his knowledge. He doesn't know everything. And he's like, man, I wonder who's going to get saved. Wow, look at that. Somebody got saved. Wow, I didn't know that. And there's people who are now teaching that in theology classes, that, that God's knowledge is increasing right along of ours. He's just several light years ahead of us. And that, that's not biblical at all. And then there's the other extreme, like, you, you're going to be saved whether you want to or not. You're the elect, you know. But yet the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I believe all means all. And I even listened to a sermon the other day by a Reformed pastor. He was talking about how God gave faith to the elect. And I'm like, oh, Romans 12 says God gave a measure of faith to every man. So I think that there's, we go to one extreme or the other. Both are true, and just like I've said it before, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Well, you can't be 200% anything. Well, yes, you can. If you're God, you can, okay? It doesn't make good math, but it makes good theology. So I, I embrace both. Just like except I embrace the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ, I, I embrace the free will of man and the election of God. And to try to camp on one side or the other is to not hear what the Bible is saying. When the Bible says, whosoever will may come, and yet God says, I chose you before the foundations of the earth. 
We don't have to make Bible verses fight each other. They both can be true. Okay. Um, for about Father's Day, since it was mentioned today, is Father's Day somehow related to Christianity, or is it something developed out of Christianity, but we still acknowledge it as a day of appreciation towards our fathers? As far as I know, Hall, uh, Hallmark invented Father's Day to make money. <laughs> That's the truth. Okay. Um, but hey, it's a good thing. Why not celebrate it? A lot of people will point to things and say, oh, but it has pagan roots. Um, can you point to me anything that doesn't have pagan roots? Where do you wear your wedding ring? Pagan. What day of the week is this? Sunday. It's not spelled S-O-N. It's spelled S-U-N. Pagan. Okay. Uh, you throw rice at wedding or bird seed or something? Pagan. Wife wears a veil over her face at a wedding? Pagan. I mean, if we're going to go back to the roots of everything that's pagan, we're not going to be doing much. <laughs> we're not going to be having... See... Here's what Christianity does. It takes what's pagan and flips it and makes it Christian and makes it a good thing. Now, so there's some things like Christmas or Easter or whatever. I don't think anybody's thinking of paganism when they're doing it, okay? If you can make everything represent Christianity, then great, go for it. I have a hard time doing it with Halloween. I don't know that we flipped anything. It's still Satan, demons, witches, warlocks, and blood and grief and whatever. That's my personal preference. Okay, I'm glad to vent on you there. But anyway, um, so what do we do with that? So uh, Father's Day, if there is any pagan roots to it, I don't know of any. Does someone know of any that maybe the person asked the question? I don't know. All right, any other questions? Not that I see. Anybody have one that didn't come through because there's bad reception here? Yes. Right, I'm sorry. Right, so... I, I'm pleading ignorance here. How many did she have by the handmaid? Because she had a handmaid that she gave. Right. Did they count that as hers? Okay. By herself. Okay, cool. I'll go with Patrick on that. He's an elder. He knows what I'm talking about. So all the other four still apply, I hope. <laughs> but up until this point, I think it was four, right? And so it's more. Okay, good. Good observation. All right. Um, are we doing a walkaway song, Nathan? Okay, no, we're not. So let's stand.